0: Uh, Welcome back. Welcome back to the News Podcast. Fred Dreyer coming to you uh, early in the week. It is Monday morning. Uh, We have a ton going on this week, so we're recording a little bit earlier in the week than normal. Uh, Got Jim Cotton and Andy Hood on the line, and we're going to break down all the thrilling action from Amstel Gold Race. What a cool race weekend this was. Uh, Amstel, not always my favorite race, but on Sunday we saw two thrilling finishes with Mariana Voss and Wout Van Aert, and uh, Jim, Andy, and I are going to get into that. Uh, Second half of the show. We have an interview with Ruth Winder, who just this past week, took one of her biggest victories ever, winning De Brabant's Appeal, the bike throw, yet another close finish, and we're gonna to talk to Ruth all about that win, what it means for her Olympic selection, and just how this Trek-Segafredo team is really blossoming into the strongest uh, women's team out there. We're also going to check in with American Keel Ryan, and Keel has been doing some fun videos for us during the classic season, and he did an interview with one of the team staffers, a gentleman named Luke, who um, is in charge of like mapping out all of the twists and turns that go into these classics races. Uh, this was from the Cobble Classics, but a lot of the concepts still apply to the Ardennes Classics where you have these familiar sections of road, but the organizers sort of switch up the connecting roads from year in, year out. And so they have to have someone on staff whose job it is is to drive the route, map it, you know, put together a presentation to tell the riders exactly what they can expect in the twists and turns in these Classics roads. So uh, fun interview with uh, Kiel interviewing this, uh, this director talking about how he goes about setting it up. Uh, before we get to that, though, let's get into it. Amstel Gold Race, this weekend, both men's and women's races come down to tiny margins. I mean, you know, sections of a wheel length in the women's race, won by Mariana Voss. And, you know, a race finished so close, one we really haven't seen in a long time. I feel like they had to get out like an electron microscope In the men's race to determine that Wout Van Aert had indeed beaten Tom Pidcock in that sprint. Uh, Jim Cotton, you were watching both of these races. Let's start with the men's race. After the finish, did you think Pidcock had won or did you think Wout Van Aert had won?
1: Well, I've got to admit actually, I thought uh, Pidcock had got it. And I'm not just saying this as the resident Pidcockologist uh, of the website. Um the the first angle that was shown which was from the far side of the um of the road from where the sprint actually took place. I think the angle of it made it look like Pidcock had got it. Um but there was various kind of various other angles. Um and apparently it all came down to um 0.04 of a of a meter or something, something absolutely like that no human being could ever tell. So, uh, yeah, apparently it was Wouts and uh, he didn't even believe it either. I'm with you. I thought Pitcock had gotten it because
0: he... You know, Oftentimes we see this. It's like the guy who's coming from behind has the momentum to just get across the line when it's that close. And I just thought back to De Brabant's appeal last week where Wout Van Aert led out the sprint and Tom Pidcock surprised everyone by having a very fast finish of his own. And it seems like Wout this time may have learned from that mistake and started his sprint a little bit later than normal. But I still thought – that Pidcock had it and I was all ready to like fall out of my chair and be like, oh my gosh, Wout Van Aert now has blown it two races in a row. But after some talking and some awesome clips on the broadcast showing UCI officials with their phones out, like zooming in on the phone picture, uh, they declared Wout the winner. To me, that was like the one of the funnier images of like, hey, here's our professional sport. We got guys on their phones uh, zooming in on the finish to make sure that uh, that it had won. A- Andy Hood, I know you've done some reporting around some of the finish line stuff and, you know, the process that they go into when there's like a photo finish. I mean, what's going on here is when there's like a delay, you know, in the result and we're all waiting with bated breath for the announcers to tell us who won. Like what is going on behind the scenes in these moments?
2: Yeah, it was so close. I, I agree. I thought that Pitcock had won as well. Uh, yeah, You know, now these days, the, the technology is there. They have this, these uh, you know, really high tech, precise cameras that can, uh, you know, measure it down to the millimeter of, of, of well, a millimeter or less. And, uh, you know, there's real no question. I mean, I guess the larger debate is, you know, in ski racing, now we have ties, you know, it comes so close like do you just give it a tie i mean a bike race someone's got to win so i suppose yeah there's got to be a winner but man the difference is was a sliver of not even a half of a layer of you know rubber on the, on, the, on the tire was the difference between winning and losing there i thought pitcock had come around and he had the speed you know had the, had the finish line been another uh you know another 10 centimeters or five centimeters he would have won obviously um but yeah there's a whole process there's a whole protocol they review the the video they review these these uh, cameras and normally it doesn't take that long. I mean, back in the day, they had to actually, you know, almost process a, uh, an image. But now it's all, it's all digital and it happens pretty fast because I think Wout said that uh, he, he didn't really find out until he almost went to the podium. Uh, so it still takes a little bit of a time because it was so close in this particular case. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's brutal. You know, the uh, difference between winning and losing, it's like, you know, finishing second and I'm still gold. Does that really mean anything? Maybe it means something to Buda because he's a young guy coming up, but well, Venar he doesn't want to be second at at Yumbo uh, Visma's home race. So, you know, that's a real slender difference for a very big uh, significance in terms of who wins and loses.
0: Yeah, and I will say that when I was thinking about it, the closeness of the margin doesn't do a lot to like you know. Um, fuel our, our like storylines or sort of tactical, whatever, whatever, because it's basically a tie. I mean, you know, it's hard to now look back at the race and be like, ah, oh, well, you know, Tom Pidcock lost because of X. You know, Ineos Grenadiers, they lost because of X. It's like, well, you know, it was basically an even race. It had to be decided by oh, a cat's whisker. But I do think you can go back at that race and look at some um, situations. I know that uh, uh, Jim Cotton in the immediate aftermath – there were some hot takes swirling around on Twitter that perhaps Wout Van Aert did not do his fair share of pulling in that last finale. And uh, some of the British cycling fans were like, yeah, hey, come on, Wout. That's a terrible British accent, but sort of like slagging on Wout for not doing his fair share in that front group of three, which was, uh, of course, Tom Pidcock, um, Wout Van Aert, and the German Max. Shockman, I mean, what was your take on these three guys motoring away and uh, whether or not Wout Van Aert was cagely skipping pulls?
1: There was there was a clip, actually, where uh, Pidcock was on the front um, there in these final 10 kilometers, the three of them, and uh, he'd done a, quite a long pull and Wout was on his wheel and he, he kind of flicked the elbow to Van Aert to come through and you just saw Van Aert sort of go, like, no. No, not not doing that again because um, after the Brabant's appeal on uh, Wednesday just gone, Pidcock said after the race, oh, Wout did too much pulling and and that left Wout out of gas for the sprint, which Pidcock went on to win. So it seems like Wout van Aert certainly learned his lesson from Brabant's appeal and kind of sat on as much as he could. I, I don't know if it was an unfair division of, uh, of the workload though. Um, you know, we Brits, we've got to cling on. To uh, uh, to what we've got, and so uh, if we can if we can defend Tom Peacock in whatever way is uh, justifiable, we'll try and do it.
0: I have a qu- so first of all, that's I think that's very smart analysis. I think you could also look at Wout Van Aert's tour of Flanders, uh, and I believe this was my hot take coming out of Flanders. That's two weeks ago. I don't remember that, but uh, and see that he did too much work there. And then when things uh, happened at the top of the Quermont, he just didn't have any glass in his legs. But I need some clarification from you, Jim Cotton, as both our Pidcockologists, but also our British cycling lingoologist, which is that, is it accurate to say that Tommy Pidcock had a cracking good crack? Uh, I'm I trying to decide, like, how do you use cracking or crack in this specific race? It's like, oh, Pidcock, what a cracking lad, had a crack. It was a cracker of a crack. And then at the end, he cracked. Like how do you? What's how would you? How would you use crack in this uh, Amstel Gold? He
1: had a cracker of a race, and then he cracked out with the sprint. So uh, you know, there's there's lots of iterations of cracker and crack uh, that you know you've got to have lived here for at least thirty years before you understand it all. Oh,
0: crack on, Jim. Crack on. Uh, Hoodie, what do you make of Ineos Grenadiers and their effort in this race? I mean, not only did we see Tom Pidcock basically almost, you know, all, whatever. He won. He lost the race by a you know, fraction of a millimeter. But we saw in this front group uh, Richard Carapaz, Mikkel Kwiatkowski, Ineos Grenadiers really dominated the front part of this race in the last 30 or so K. Dylan Van Barla was up the road. And to me, I mean – I don't know. What do you make of Ineos Grenadiers and their and their classics team?
2: Yeah, it was another impressive showing, and now they have a winner with Pitcock, and it's it's that's bad news for everybody else in the peloton, especially in these types of races. I mean, I think Pitcock's still a step or two away from really winning a big race like Flanders, but uh, he's really improved just his ability to race to finish off a race and really have. Combination really of having the, the engine to go the distance, but having kind of the tactical sense too of how to read a race. Quite impressive really for such a young guy. And what struck me most, not only the way that Enios raced, I mean it's uh you know I think they always had that chip on their shoulder inside of the Enios camp. Everyone just kind of writes them off, slags them off as a you know it's a Grand Tour team. They don't really do that well in the one days, and they have one their fair share of one days over the years. I mean with uh, Kibukowski, even Garrett Thomas, when Harold back back in the day, they've had some other success with. Um, uh, yogi back in the day um, so you see this new generation coming through and I think they're going to be competitive in these kinds of races but what struck me most about uh, Sunday was Peacock's reaction after losing, he was mad, he was angry he, was like, he didn't like that, he didn't like the fact that he didn't win and to me that is like the heart of a lion that's what you need to be a bike racer you know there's a lot of hug, huggy dubby out there after the races and oh nice race chap but man he was angry and that fire in his belly is going to carry him far in this sport because that's what it takes to win.
1: Yeah, looking looking at Van Aert and Pidcock in the kind of five minutes while the jury were waiting to make their decision, there was no kind of... After a lot of bike races, you see this kind of false camaraderie like the second place finisher going up to the winner and going, oh yeah, well done, you deserved it. You were the strongest rider. But when Van Aert and Pidcock were standing there, they were just like... The blood was simmering between both of them. And uh, yeah, there was certainly no niceties there. And... So it really seems like Pidcock isn't um, overawed by bigger names like Van Aert, even though he's only 21.
0: What do you guys think this means for Kwiatkowski? You know, here you have Pidcock really blossoming into a potential winner of Flanders and uh, these Ardennes races. That has been quickkowski's kind of bread and butter. I mean, obviously he look like, he's a great domestique for the Grand Tours as well. But one thing I was thinking as this race was unfolding, as I was like, man. Pidcock is almost like the same mold as Kwiatkowski, only a little bit better. Um, I mean, do we see... Uh, could you guys see Pidcock becoming like the new star for these races, replacing Kwiatkowski as the guy they're working for?
1: At the moment, they're sort of on a level pegging, but it seems like Kwiatkowski is, is happy to to work for Pidcock because it... Well, it looks at least like Kwiatkowski worked to set up Pidcock's attack. So... The three in the osgrendiers attacked over the cowberg at the end and it was it was Kuerkowski that went straight away and as soon as he was caught Pidcock went and it was that that made this final selection of three so it, it seems like they're sort of working together but in the long run I think he's going to be thinking oh <laughs> i've got I've got to uh, work for Pidcock for the next kind of five years of my life now or however long he stays
2: Yeah, a lot has made it about this quick step kind of whip pack Three three Musketeers kind of mentality but Ineos has been doing that quite effectively over the last couple of years anyway already at the Grand Tours between the last couple of years and it certainly translates over into these one-day classics Um, you know, Kiwi what does he do? Does he make a lot of money and be part of this the most powerful team in the peloton and win occasionally and work for Pitcock or does he go to another team where maybe he's the leader and then he's losing against Ineos so I think for Kwiatkowski, he's a smart guy. I think he'll see the benefits of staying where he is, even if that means a little bit of fewer chances for him over the next few years. I mean, Peacock, he's a UK rider. He's going to get star
0: billing at that team for sure. Uh, one more uh, point for you guys. And this isn't so much as a question, but a takeaway I had. You know, uh, I remember watching Amstel 15, 20 years ago when they had the old finish up the Kauberg and it really seemed like it was a race for, um, you know, these punchy climbers like your Vino Kurov's and Damiano Cunego's. Frank Schleck's guys of that mold. Um, then they moved the, um, finish line sort of a kilometer back and it still, it, it, it changed up the dynamics of the race, but I felt like it was still very much a race for that mold of rider, which was like climber, punchy guy, and those were the guys deciding this race. Now in 2017, they've moved this, um, finish. You know, and the final climbs are like five or six Ks from the finish. There's no more final ascent of the Cowberg, And in looking at how this race has played out, especially this year, I just feel like it's totally opened the door for this race to cater to like – Really like all rounders, like cobbled classics guys and climbers. You know, this is a race that Peter Sagan could have been in. You know, we see this finale between Wout Van Ert, who is a cobbled classics guy who can also climb, Tom Pidcock, uh, another versatile rider, and then uh, Max Schachman, who's more of the climber, sort of punchy guy, not really a cobbled guy, but you know, it's two stars of the cobbled classics and a climber up there deciding this race. And uh, to me, I remember when they switched the finish and I was a little bummed out because I've always liked the final of the Cowberg. But it really seems like changing the finale of this race has completely shaken it up and like breathed new life into it. And again, I, I really am happy with what they did. When they did this multiple years ago, I was a little skeptical of it. But now it just seems like so many different types of riders – can finish this race. And it's just added a whole new dynamic to Amstel Gold Race.
2: Yeah, I'm showing my age here, right? I remember when they used to have a finish back in Ma Street, down by some old cement factory. I don't know if you are around for those days, Fred. <laughs> but that was really boring. Uh, yeah, it's the same dynamic, really, that we saw at Liege-Bastogne-Liege. Because same thing, they had the finish line at the top of Anz, the climb there, really kind of a, almost blocked the race because everyone knew where the moose had to go or the Roche de Falcon. Up into the final climb it was almost pre-scripted and that same thing was happening in the Amstel gold so by moving that finish it's really pumped in a lot of new dynamics into the finale and you're right you can see all kinds of different kinds of riders win that race you know will the race the peloton learn how to read this race in a couple of years and get kind of these big bunch finishes and everyone starts saying it's boring again because you know if you look at yesterday's race you know, there's a big group coming in behind that had, I mean, I don't know, it's probably forty, fifty guys there. So and then this year was a circuit course, a little bit different. But but I agree. It's a much more uh, engaging finale than it was right at the top of the Cobra.
0: Really thrilling finish in that women's race. Uh, Jim Cotton, you were writing the race report, watching the thing live. Um, take us through you know, the final few kilometers with Kasia Nuiadoma and Elisa Longo-Borghini off the front and this group of stars with Mariana Voss and it charging from behind. I feel like nine times out of ten, we see that uh, two-person group make it to the line and not get caught. In this instance, they did get caught. As you were watching it, how apparent was it that they were going to get caught, or did you think they were going to stay away?
1: It was an interesting dynamic when when Longo, Borghini and Nioadema got to the top of the Calberg together. This the way that the race, as as you were just saying, how it plays into sort of climbers and sprinters and sort of all rounders. Longo Borghini knew she wasn't going to out sprint so she was just sat there and refused to do any of the pulling. And Nieuwendam was also like, "Well, if you're not going to do anything, then then I'm not either." And then behind this group of about seven or eight, who are all like quite fast sprinters, just came up behind. And it, as soon as you saw them on the camera camera shot, it was obvious that they were going to get caught. And and then once once it all came back together again, I mean. With Voss in that group, it was between Voss and Vollering, like Longo Borghini and Neodoma were nowhere to be seen, like once the sprint was started. So it was a real interesting, um, interesting finish, and it does, it's testament to the way that the race plays into the hands of so many different riders.
0: Yeah, it was an interesting choice. I mean, that whole, like the stare down, you know, again, I feel like so many times when there's a stare down inside the finale, like, still someone from that front group wins, but this was kind of a, a dagger in the heart type situation where the group from behind actually did come and catch them. now hoodie, you've been making some calls this morning and it sounds like um, not everyone is uh, psyched with the way that that race uh, played out what are you what are you hearing with your reporting?
2: Yeah, we heard someone from some sources telling us we can't quite get the final scoop on the exact situation but there were some unhappy people inside the team bike exchange camp because they felt grace brown had pulled clear uh she was actually caught near the bait right i think right at the base of the colt and in the Coburn. she was off the front and there were some complaints about the motorbikes i mean it's a tip you know we hear these complaints all the time that the hometown tv cameras are helping pacing back the spanish riders of the vuelta that same accusation was flying around uh yesterday that some people thought that the tv cameras the dutch tv cameras we're helping the likes of Van Vluten and Voss in that chase group kind of chase that down and bring it back at the Coburg. You know, would have Brown had enough in her legs to get up and over the Coburg into the finish line and hold off that chase group? You know, I don't know. Um, but there are some disgruntled people out there. Personally, I thought it, it looked like, uh, in the replays I saw, it looks like it wasn't as close. But at first, I almost thought that, uh, Marianne Voss pulled a zabble and posted up too early and got pipped there at the bike throw at the, the line. But, uh, I guess in the end, it really wasn't quite as close as it looked on the official shot there. But, uh, another double sweep for Yumbo Visma. You know, they did it again, above them, and now they're doing it again here, uh, on home road. So th- that's very happy inside that, uh, Team headquarters over this weekend.
0: Yeah, and really speaks to the dynamism going on in the women's peloton right now. Look, the you know the season started with SD Works dominating some of the early races, and I was you know sort of raising the alarm bells of like, uh oh, you know everyone's been talking about parity in women's cycling, but is SD Works just going to mop the floor with everyone? And that has not been the case. And we've seen Trek-Segafredo rise to the challenge, and Mariana Voss with Jumbo-Visma rise to the challenge, and Anamiek van Vleuten rise to the challenge now. And if you look at the women's uh, World Tour and big pro races that we've had already. Uh, um it definitely speaks to parity in uh, the women's peloton and uh, you know Marianne Vos still having it and Jumbo Visma this new team really rising to the challenge so cool racing going on in women's racing right now um what do you guys uh, what do you guys think i mean any other residual takes that we're missing from this uh, this weekend what do you think this tells us for the upcoming races of Flesh Wallone and Liège-Bastogne-Liège
1: i would say for for flesh, um, it'll be interesting to see because uh, Anna van der Breggen was was racing at Amstel, and she'd been she'd been ill the week before and missed uh, missed a race. Um, but she was completely missing at uh, Amstel as well, uh, so I don't know if that's because she was ill or because she was cooling her jets. Because um, obviously she's she always goes well in flesh, so it'll be interesting to see if she can sort of turn that around uh, Wednesday. And as well, I, I guess another takeaway would be that Tom Pidcock's got to be one of the favourites for flesh, given uh, Vanar and Vanderpool both won't be there.
2: Yeah, I think it's I think it's cool that uh, we're seeing guys like uh, Primoz Roglic, Pagaccia racing these races. I mean, Pagatia will be there in Liège and. Liege and uh, and you know, Roglic was very strong. Someday got a puncture there. I think we're right at the base of the Coburg. Yeah, you know, I think it's just great to see that these GC Tour de France caliber riders are sticking their toes, dipping their toes into the one days. You know, over, you know, over for many of many years the big GC guys would not take those risks. They didn't want to travel. They would be at altitude, almost didn't want the inconvenience of racing these monuments. And I think it says a lot about the, this new generation that are saying, hey, these races are important. We want to be there, represent, and, and fill out our Palmates. It's not all just about winning the Tour de France.
0: Well, classic season is wrapping up. We're going to keep following the big races on VeloNews.com. See, who, see which cracking lad has a cracker of a crack uh, at Flesh Wallone and Liege Bastille, liege And which cracking lady has a cracker of a crack as well. Um, so thank you, Jim Cotton and Andrew Hood, for your fiery takes this morning. We're going to catch up with Kiel Reinen and Ruth Winder, and we'll be back on the pod- podcast next week.
3: So uh, I introduce you all to Luke. Luke uh, Merswin is in charge of everything having to do with cobbles. So uh, he prepares uh, the menu for the meeting. Uh, to review the parkours and all the specific details of the route. So, Luke, can you tell everyone a little bit about what do you do?
4: Yeah, hey. Uh, so, I, I get the, the parkour of, let's say, the Flemish Classics on uh, GPX and then I put it on my tablet. And then first, I I, uh, I make a note of all the cities and the villages that I, that I see where we go through. I put them under each other. I spread it a little bit. And then... Uh, I, some, someday I take my car and then I do the whole parkour and then I write down how many kilometers from village to village and some turns of some special things that I see or in a village when we have, let's say, uh, uh, in the village, you go left and it's on cobblestones. That means it's dangerous when it's wet. So I have to mark it down. If we pass there in that race and you go left in that small village, even after 15 or 20 kilometers and it's dangerous when it's cobblestones you guys have to know that so i know most of it of the parkour and then when we come on the main things, let's say the specific cobblestone section or the climbs then we can tell you ah it's six kilometers to the old quadramon and from the old quadramon to the partners but is three kilometers and we do the tour uh, the ronde van Vlaandenstraat, and when you cross right out of the of the holes there and These things
3: we do. Yeah, I would say, Luke, you're being modest because you even know exactly where the the, the plastic uh, pillar is in the corner or where a garden box is, where there's uh, road furniture. And uh, you also mentioned you use a tablet. But one of my favorite things about the Belgian meetings is actually in the meeting itself, there's no technology. We, we use paper uh, maps and you blow them up yeah. and we put them on the wall and everything yeah. is highlighted and yeah. drawn out. Yeah. I can use also
4: my computer and uh, with a thing like that I can send it to to whatever on a digital thing. But I think we have big maps and I color them in. I can write down better and say, ah, here we have a roundabout. We go right and it's 700 meters and watch out here. I can show you more on the old school way on a board with big maps. I have a lot of work on it, but I can, I can show more. And I think you understand as riders more what I want instead of a digital that you look to the TV and you see a line that this is the parkour. I show more on the old school way, I think.
3: Yeah, I think we absorb more also. And then in the final step, you're in the car there with Stephen and, and then Stephen relays to us in the radio all of the specifics. So if we don't retain everything from the meeting, then we can, uh, have confirmation during, yeah. during the race. Yeah. And I, I imagine it's quite stressful in the, in the car sometimes.
4: It is. It is always stressful because you, you have sometimes five things in a row. They say something on the race radio. Let's say that five guys are in the breakaway. They give the numbers, but at that time they give the numbers. You guys say, I need a bottle or, uh, you want to ask somebody or something happened in the cars. It's always stressful. So yeah. that's why we work very good together, uh, me and uh, and Steven. So it goes very well.
3: And how many years you did this now?
4: Oh, I think it's already 10 years. It start with <laughs> the mole. He said, the mole asked me one Hey, look, can you go to look to the parkour of uh, E3, Harderbeek one time? There is a new section somewhere. Can I don't have time. Can you look? And I said to him, You know what? I'm going to do the whole parkour. And then I start to make notes. And then I say to him, kick this there and that. And then he say, yeah, maybe it's better you come in my, like, in the car. <laughs> yeah, why not? So that's, that started. And then, I, and then it started. Yeah. Maybe we can use some help from friends that I know to give bottles and wheels. So now I have a whole group, you know, with 14 or 15.
3: An guys. entourage.
4: Entourage. <laughs> and uh, We give them the name. And these are the famous Bidon, Bidon guys. The bidon guys. know, yeah, You see them everywhere. But uh, I'm, re- let's say I'm responsible for them or why help them. But then I have, uh, let's say, my right hand is uh, Baldwin. And he made the parcours for the bidon guys. Okay. So What is also important, okay, they pass here and you can give here bottles to you guys. But then they have to know the parcours to go to the other spot.
3: Yeah, yeah, sure. 10 or 15. Across or 15 uh, Uncle Jim's field and yeah, then uh, yeah, past the cobblestone yeah, street and, through, and uh, too, back yeah, back yeah. through the high school. Yeah. So,
4: like tomorrow we are at five five cars, and I think they do,
3: let's say, six, six, six seven, about 28 places. So, Yeah, that uh, means it's like magic. We see them every, every 15 eight, Every nine <laughs> kilometers
4: you will see the Bidon yeah. guys. Yeah. It's a
3: work of art. Thank it you is, for it. It is, it is. It
4: is, yeah. But we, yeah, we love to do it. And the Bidon guys, of course, uh, love to do it also. Okay.
3: So that's Luke Wiersman, and uh, we hope you enjoy the race tomorrow. Yeah.
0: And now on the podcast, celebrating her biggest European one day win of her career. It's U.S. champion Ruth Winder joining us from the Netherlands. Ruth, thanks for coming on the podcast.
5: Yeah, of course. Happy to chat.
0: So, Ruth, I'm not going to lie to you. I just about fell out of my chair when I was watching De Brabant's Appeal last week and saw... That finish come down to the wire and you sprint against Demi Fullering and, um, you know, another one of these photo finishes. And um, I was hoping you could take us into the final couple of, you, you know, your memories from the final few meters there of what was going on in that group and, you know, your mindset of charging towards the line.
5: Yeah, for sure. I mean, I had uh, my DS, Giorgia Bronzini, in the car and she'd been telling me to be patient the whole time. But I um was feeling like I wanted to go sooner. There was like this kind of a climb before the finish at the at that race there. And then it flattens out with about 300 meters to go. Uh, but I was just trusting some good information from an amazing sprinter in the car. And uh, I haven't actually been in that many sprint finishes like that. amongst my career. I'm normally the lead out girl or I've done my work so much earlier. So I was really trusting her and I was just, um, waiting, waiting, waiting to be patient. And then finally opened up my sprint. Um, yeah. And then at the line there, like, I couldn't even really see Demi because, she was all the way on the other side of the road like we were the whole if you look at the picture if anybody can see the picture it's we're quite on the opposite side of the road like she was very far to the left and I was all the way on the right so I just barely saw her out the corner of my eye when I just yeah really threw my bike at the end the just felt crazy I had no idea who had won like I had no idea I just thought she had because she celebrated <laughs> but to me I couldn't see I couldn't tell yeah
0: um in my own personal pathetic teeny tiny bike racing experience I found that that is like the hardest thing to do. The weight when, you know, you're in a in a front group in a position to win with other people. I was I was never able to do it. I was always the idiot who would jump first or like put in a you know way too much effort at the wrong time. And it's just, I guess it's refreshing as an everyman to hear that um that dynamic, you know, plays out at all levels of the sport. Maybe the desire inside to want to go, but then having the voice in your in your ear saying, no, 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 no you know, cool out on this one.
5: (laughs) Definitely. Definitely. I felt, it feels more stressful to wait, you know, like you want to go, but it is, it is a long time. And we knew that it was a long finish, like 300 meters is far to go. Right. So you really had to wait.
0: So now Ruth, you have had a, a decorated career up to this point. Big things to come in the future, of course. You've been the U.S. champion, stage one of the Giro d'Italia, won the pink jersey. But what does this win at De Appeal? like? What's the significance of this one for you?
5: Um, this one is a really big deal for me, um, and it's more like yes, it's a huge one-day race. It's a Belgian classic. It's it's really really cool race to win. Um, but for me personally too, I really um, kind of marked it on my calendar early on, and I wanted to be prepared mentally, physically. And I, yeah, and I just feel like I executed mentally and physically what I could do at the end of the day. You know, I was felt really happy with the way I raced and winning is fantastic and amazing. And it feels really good to like put all the pieces together and do it. And so for me, on like a more personal, intimate level, like it felt just really good because of the way that I prepared for that race. And to know that I can, I can pull it all together and like really focus on that. It wasn't just like a... Yeah. It wasn't just a fluke kind of a feeling, if that makes sense.
0: (laughs) No, for sure. I mean, look, obviously we saw the finish and how that played out. But take us inside some of the earlier parts of the race. When you think back to this race being a very successful uh, preparation and then also execution, like what are some of the things that viewers may have missed from the early part of the race that you felt went really well for you?
5: Um, I just was really trusting in my teammates and I was really patient the whole race, I think. Like, and I just tried to focus on where I needed to be every moment rather than like worrying about what was coming in 10 kilometers. Cause you never really know, right? Like, you know, the course, you know, the climb, you know, where you need to be when you need to be there. But if you start thinking too much about what's 10, 20, 30 kilometers down the road, then sometimes you can lose focus on what's happening right there in front of you. And so I just really tried to stay like focused on yeah, being good position all the time versus like needing to be in good position in 10 kilometers, if that makes any sense.
0: No, for sure. And I mean, that's such an important element of these Belgian classics that uh, listeners and readers may not know about. But, you know, being at the Being in the right position with 25K to go or 50K to go is sometimes as important as being in the right position, you know, right at the finish because there's so many twists and turns and cobbled climbs and narrow roads. And there's so many opportunities to get caught out and waste energy having to catch back on that having a smart, efficient race is like such an important part of it.
5: Yeah, definitely. Um, but yeah, it was a good race from the start. Uh, the, the team rode really well. We had some really good attacks and some small breaks that we always had kind of teammates in earlier that just kept coming back. And in the end, it was, it was the one that I was in in the final that went.
0: So Ruth, one of the storylines we're following this year is obviously U.S. Olympic selection, and um, you know how the U.S. has this long team of women all going for the uh, Olympic spots, and at some point a committee will have to meet to decide who makes the spot. I mean, with this win, have you been thinking at all? Did this play? It has this played into your thoughts at all about what this might mean for Olympic selection?
5: Yeah, I mean it's hard not to let it go into my thoughts, to be honest, right? Like it's such a big race, it's such a big deal this year, um, and I think right now, at any any win is beneficial, any podium, any any anything, because we're so far for the road spots that we have on the women's side, um, we don't have any automatic qualifiers, so it's pretty much everybody just trying to get whatever results they can. And as of right now, actually, we only have two more races, kind of before they start making the selection, because they'll close close it at the beginning of May. So we just really have a handful of races left to go before then. So for me, it's, it's definitely good. It definitely will help. But I think that we have a lot of really strong riders, which is a good thing. Like I'm not sitting here like, Oh no, but it's, it's really cool because we have such a really strong women's team. Um, so we'll just, we'll just have to see, like, I think it obviously doesn't hurt me to win races, <laughs> but, but we don't know. It doesn't make me a guarantee or anything for the Leon Olympics like that. Like there's lots of other really strong women.
0: Well, I mean, again, we're going to be covering that race, but I, I agree with you. I think that any time you win, especially European races, especially against a field of strong women like that, that's got to be a, a good uh, argument to make that you dis- that you belong on that team.
5: Yeah, I hope so. We'll find out, but but I hope it. I hope it helps me.
0: <laughs> Ruth, let's talk about Amstel Gold Race. I mean, we saw another thrilling, uh, th- another thrilling race. I feel like the last. Uh, two weeks has been nothing but like photo finishes and like, you know, dramatic finishes. And we saw your teammate Elisa Longo-Borghini out in front with Kasha Nui some cat and mouse going on, and then a catch just before the line and Mariana Voss won. Um, take me inside Trek Segafredo's um, strategy for that race. And, you know, what were you all hoping to accomplish um, with Elisa and the team?
5: Yeah, we'd been really aggressive the whole race, actually. Um, really trying to be in breakaways all of the time. And really, we had a three in the end in the small group. There was about 20, 25 riders maybe in the final group towards the end, but it kept splitting into smaller and then it would come back together. And um, yeah, like all of everybody in the team had been super aggressive and up there we'd had... Lucinda and Loretta in a break earlier on, um, and Audrey had been our road captain and Taylor had done some really strong attacks. And then Lucinda and I were kind of attacking the last lap, but then when everything was coming back together and Grace Brown got off the front, then, um, basically we thought that our best chance of winning was to put Elisa up the road. Uh, so we chased Grace Brown back and got her back at the bottom of the cow And then, um, Kasia attacked, which Elisa was right there with her over that attack. Um, And in the end, I think, yeah, the the cat and mouse game didn't quite work out. Uh, Aliza probably should have worked. She should have worked there with Kasia, and and it's just... It was kind of just a mistake at the end of the day.
0: Well, it was a thrilling finish. And I mean, you know, it's sometimes it's the gamble that you have to make there in the finale. And I was just talking with my colleagues about it, about, you know, sometimes when that front group is off the front, you're sort of accustomed to them always getting away or making it to the line. But then sometimes the rear group is able to bridge up and catch. And it's one of the, it's one of the exciting moments of bike racing. So even though the race didn't play out for you all, it was an extremely thrilling, thrilling moment of racing.
5: It was. And I think that we're, you know, like we were, we were riding together really well, raced together really, really strong, like to have three of us in that final group. We're really excited about that. Really proud of that. Um, You know, we were missing Lizzie a bit. Maybe she's, she's just still, she's sick. She was recovering still. So, we don't. Have her here, which was a shame. Um, but yeah, I think it was a really, really fun race. I I finished the race feeling like that was fun and I felt super strong the whole time, which is always good if you finish a race feeling that way. So, um, yeah, from my point of view, it was a good race and I was really glad just to have Amstel on the calendar this year. I was pretty disappointed when it got canceled last year and it's a beautiful area here and the roads are so nice and it feels strange with no fans. Honestly, it feels like Amstel is this huge, massive race and then with no fans there, it makes it feel a lot smaller than it is. Um, to be honest, but like, I was still a really good race to have on and So many people were cheering on TV and everything. So you definitely feel that on social media when you come home.
0: What was your take on the circuit versus the traditional route? How do you think it impacted the racing?
5: Um, I think it was just a different style a little bit. Like typically we have some pretty steep climbs before we lead into the circuit there in, in, uh, um, which we didn't have this year which just changes just changes the run in me a bit. Maybe like in some ways it felt a little bit more stressful because it was this crit style and the climbs were so frequent back to back to back. But then there's still quite a lot of stress in the normal run up in in Amstel because the roads are so narrow and the really steep downhills into these tight corners. And then you've got these really steep uphills and all the stress and rush and blah, blah, blah. And to me, it was just, it just felt like a bit of a different race entirely. Like, we've done a lot of circuit racing in the US and stuff like that. So I feel like I'm used to that style. But in the European bunch, we just don't really do it that much. Um, but personally, I liked it. I kind of like just being on the same course and you really know everything and you know every corner. You could take every descent maybe a little bit faster each time, you know? So I thought it was good. It would have been amazing if we had spectators, but I know that's not possible and smart this year. So it's a good decision not to. But it was also a shame.
0: You know, uh, Ruth, with you riding this well, what does this uh, mean for Flesh or for Liège-Bestogne-Liège? I mean, are you going to be more on the Workerby chair or are you going to be a rider to race for the win there?
5: Um, I think it all would depend. I think we kind of have – the nice opportunities to look for breakaways. But if it comes down to a finish like it did in Amstel again, when our best chance of winning is to send Elisa up the road and that means I have to chase, and that's, then that's what I do. Like I do whatever the best chance of winning is. Um, and Elisa is just a phenomenally strong athlete. So, um, but then if I get in a breakaway like I did, uh, Brabants, then you just never know, right? So typically I would say I'm, I'm normally leaning towards the worker bee side, but Things are a little bit different this year because we still don't know like Lizzie's just been pretty sick. So we're just missing missing her, which just kind of frees up a little bit of a of a kind of like an open type role, if that makes sense. Like it's open until I need to be a seek.
0: I'm looking at the rankings right now and uh, in the UCI rankings. Elisa is ranked first. But, you know, the the gap back to Anna Fonda Bregen, Annemiek Van Vluten's right up there. Mariana Voss is right up there. And then the Women's World Tour, Voss is ranked first. But Elisa's a close second. Van Vluten's up there. I mean, it's really a testament to how close and even things are in uh, Women's World Tour um, racing this year.
5: The jersey, the World Tour latest jersey has kind of been bouncing on the backs of a couple of different riders uh, this year so far. But. We've had it we had it on Aliza for install and that was nice.
0: Yeah, I mean it's been when with when the racing first started I'm back in February with SD Works coming out of the gun with two really big wins. I was like, "Uh-oh." I wonder if SD Works really is going to, you know, just flood the flood the zone and, and control the racing the same as they did, you know, three or four years ago. But that just has not been the case and a testament to the depth and strength of the Women's World Tour uh, Peloton.
5: Yeah, definitely. I think a lot of people had that feeling of, oh, they keep winning everything. And I was like, come on, there's a whole season to go. There's a whole season to go. And then it was, yeah. It was very close, very close, but I aided to the, the help of them, not winning everything. so <laughs>
0: Well, Ruth Winder, we uh, appreciate you coming on the podcast, and again, chapeau to you for that thrilling win at de Brabant's Peel. It has implications for the Olympics. it has implications for team rankings and all the fun stuff that we like to follow. So we'll let you get back to your afternoon there in the Netherlands, but uh, we also wish you the best of luck at the races coming up this week.
5: Yeah, thanks so much.